of Philippians. If you're visiting with us this morning, just want to again say welcome. Thank you so much for being here on a special Sunday in celebration with our family. Um, as we see um, lives who are saying, I, I give myself to what God has called me to be. And they are striking their colours, as it were, and saying, I follow my Saviour. Uh, we're just finishing off this Sunday our series that we've been doing in the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to the book of Philippians. If it's a digital device and you're following along, put it in flight mode so it doesn't buzz and distract you. Um, we're going to read from the book of Philippians in the moment, but it struck me that as we began this series a few weeks ago now, this letter starts with grace and it finishes with grace. So I'm going to remind you, Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's concern was that the church in Philippi would grasp the joy of grace in Christ. And now it closes with grace. I'm going to read just the last couple of verses from chapter 4, the last chapter in this book. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send their greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. That'd be a good place to pray, wouldn't it? Let's pray. Lord, if nothing else, you are the God of grace. Grace so rich, so free, that it's confronting. We think we need to deserve it. We think we need to do something to pay it back even. But you are the God who has poured out grace upon grace upon grace in Jesus for us. And that should make us joyful. That should make us excited. So as we finish this book of grace and joy in the gospel, Lord, open our eyes to see your love for us poured out. And maybe in surprising ways. Maybe in ways that we've never seen before. But give us eyes to see truth and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Look, from beginning to end, this book has been a joyful letter which magnifies grace. It, it points us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to just make some closing observations, really about the way that affects our generosity and our contentment, and how the gospel transforms our understanding of both of those things. So I want to read the closing passage of this joyful book together. And why don't we stand up to do that again? I know you've been standing for a while, but it is a great thing to stand in the presence of God's word. Philippians chapter 4, it's not a long reading, and so you, if you can't stand this morning, that's, that's fine, just, just sit. But Philippians chapter 4, reading from verse 10, 
And Paul says this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again, you renewed your care for me. You were, in fact, concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know both how to make do with little and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I'm able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Still, you did well by partnering with me in, the gospel, in, in my hardship. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my needs several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. But I have received everything in full. And I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided. A fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's God's word. Why don't you take a seat? Before we launch into this too far, let me just acknowledge that there are two coffee cup verses in this passage. I know that many of you are familiar with them and are excited that we have finally got to this part of Philippians where we get to deal with them. Philippians 4.13, of course, I learnt this in the proper version, the good old King Jimmy. I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me, all right? Strengtheneth. That's King James, authorised, by the way. <laughs> no, I don't want the wordy version. We need to finish by... Philippians 4.19, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's name it and claim it. All right. They've got a ring about them, don't they? Those two verses. And in case you think I'm being overly sarcastic about how I speak about coffee cup verses, let me assure you, I truly, truly love these ones. They've been a comfort to me, as I know they have been for you. They've been an encouragement to me many times over the years. However, the problem with these well-known and very popularised verses is they tend to get yanked out of their neighbourhood and visited like they're a little shack on a lonely property somewhere. We tend to read them apart from their context. More often than not... This means that we just ship any old meaning we like and that we think fits the occasion. Sometimes making verses say things that Paul never intended them for, the, for them to say. And we want to be more responsible than that in how we read and handle God's word. His words are life. They're not to be trifled with. So let's just back up a little bit and see if we can get a bird's eye view of what's been happening between Paul and his friends in Philippi in order that we can maybe see a little clearer what Paul means in all of these verses and in particular 
those two quite famous verses. Here's my first observation. It's this. Partnership is more important than money. Partnership is more important than money. I want you just to hold on to that little phrase for a little bit. And we'll see what unpacks out of this text. I want you to recall how Paul viewed these dear friends from Philippi. We, we read this book, the book of Philippians, but we sometimes forget it's a letter. It's a letter that Paul wrote while he was in jail. And he was writing to some friends of his in a church in Philippi. It was a real church, a real place, a real gathering of God's people. Men and women and families and children. I wonder if they were celebrating you know, Sundays where some of their kids were being baptized or there were adults who had been saved. And it's a real church. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, Paul says, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you. Always praying with joy. For all of you in my every prayer, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Right from the outset in this letter, Paul establishes that these faithful friends were joined to him by a partnership in the gospel. They were more than just acquaintances to him. They were more than just even a friend. They were partners. Now I want you to see what that looks like in chapter 4. Have a look in Philippians 4 verse 10. Have it in front of you. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me but lacked the opportunity to show it. Or down a little bit further in verses 14 down to verse 16. It says, still you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent gifts for my needs several times. Or down in verse 18, for I've received everything in full. And I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. So I want to make just a couple of observations before hitting on the two main truths that I want you to notice from this passage today. First observation. The Philippians always cared for Paul but didn't always have an opportunity to express that care. It appears that at some point in the past, the Philippian church were regular contributors to Paul's financial support. We're not sure what changed, but it seems they had to stop giving at some point. They weren't able to continue. And yet Paul understood that this didn't mean that they had stopped caring for him. They just didn't have the opportunity to express it, he said. So here's an application, something that I think that we could take away from that. Let's be careful about making judgment calls on how invested someone is based purely on their ability to physically show their care. 
that may be through financial support or maybe time spent or energy given. But so often we sit in judgment on one another, just going, oh, that person's not very committed. Well, why not? Oh, because they haven't shown up or they haven't given something or they haven't done something. Man, the Philippian church didn't have an opportunity to do something and Paul still knew that they cared for him deeply because it was built on partnership. Here's the second thing I want you to know. Money wasn't the goal. It was just the vehicle through which real partnership was expressed. Paul says they had become partners with him in his hardship. When Paul received their gift, he knew it had cost them. That's partnership. That's not one person just benefiting from everybody else. This is actually joining with each other. When the the Philippian church gave, they were identifying with Paul in his hardship. They were saying, Paul, we stand with you. Paul, you are our partner and your hardship is becoming our hardship. And your joys are our joys. That's what partnership is. I wonder if we've not understood tithing very well in the church. Or maybe, maybe I failed to teach it well. Tithing and giving isn't like paying your membership dues. It's not like, oh, did I remember to pay my Netflix subscription this month? That's why it didn't work. Oh, my, my spiritual life seems a bit rocky this, this month. Maybe I didn't give enough tithe. It's not what tithing is. It's not what giving is. You don't give into something like a membership due because you expect to get something out. That's what membership's like, at least in the way the world understands it. I pay my subscription, I get some goods and services. Maybe we haven't understood tithing and giving very well in the church if that's the way we understand it. The church isn't a transactional arrangement. Maybe we've become so influenced by consumerism that we've lost sight of that. We don't have members of this church, we have partners. If you're giving to get something, I'm going to let you in on a little deal, a little secret. You are getting a bad deal. Shop around. You could do better. You could. Take your money elsewhere. You'll probably get more bang for your buck. Now, before our treasure has an aneurysm... Let me clarify that. Does it cost to do ministry? Yes. Are there operating costs in owning land and a building? Yes. Are we a business in the sense of providing a product for profit? No. There's nothing that we're selling to try and gain income into this church. 
Do we rely on the tithes and offerings of the congregation? Yes, we do. But let me be very clear. If you give with a transactional mindset, we can spend that, but you will gain nothing. When we give with a partnership mindset, the reward far outweighs the investment. Because partnership is far more than money. All right. Here are the two main things that I want you to take away. Two big topics. One is contentment. The other one is generosity. Both of them are dealt with this in this passage. Let's take contentment first. Here's my main premise, my main point, or my conclusion even, as I've studied the outworking of this letter. Gospel joy produces generous contentment. As Paul has worked his way through this letter, these four chapters that we've been working through, Gospel joy produces generous contentment. Paul has spent this entire letter unpacking the good news of the grace of God towards sinners that is found in Christ Jesus alone. He's done this in a way that shines a spotlight on how this gospel, this good news, produces joy. And now as the letter comes to a close... The gospel joy overflows in tangible ways, in ways that are practical. And namely, that's contentment and generosity. So have a look with me back in Colossians chapter 4, starting from verse 10. Sorry, Colossians, did I say? Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. says this, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. There's that rejoicing again. Because once again, you renewed your care for me. You were, in fact, concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need. This is the part of what, if you're a highlighting person, highlight this, all right? I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. So after thanking the Philippians for renewing their partnership with him, he quickly reassures them that his rejoicing, remember he says, I'm, I'm rejoicing that you've, that you've once again showed your care for me. His rejoicing doesn't come out of a place of desperation. So although he's grateful for their gift, he says that he didn't require it to be joyful. You see, we, we so often place the emphasis on the wrong word. And so we change the entire meaning of the sentence. We could hear Paul say something like this. I'm so glad that you sent me money. All right? Emphasis on the money. I'm so glad that you sent me money. 
When we emphasize the word money, it communicates that as the main subject of the sentence. But as we read these verses, I think we would get a better idea of Paul's intention here by hearing him say this. I'm so glad you sent me money. His emphasis is not on the money. It's on the you. It's on the Philippians. It's on his friends. It's on his partners in the gospel. We're going to unpack that a little bit more a bit later, but I wanted you to notice this so that you could see Paul's heart in his relationship with money. His rejoicing wasn't born out of his need because he says he didn't have any need. So what's the secret to contentment? Paul says, I found it. I've learned the secret to contentment. They're pretty astounding verses. Verses 11 and verse 12. I don't say this out of need. For I've learned to be content. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little. I know how to make do with a lot. And in any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or need. Paul said he learned contentment. So here's an immediate observation to take from this. Contentment needs to be learned. It doesn't come natural to us. By nature, we are restless consumers. We're factories for idols, John Calvin said. We are forever thirsty and we are never satisfied. We have tethered contentment to a dream that always walks one pace faster than us. That thing that just seems out of reach that you always say, if only I could gain this, if only I could consume that, if only I could get this, then I will be content. And who knows so far in life how that works out. It doesn't, right? We already know that. We start learning it from childhood. Oh, please, Dad, it's the best thing in the world. Can I buy it? Sure. Three days later, you find it broken on the floor somewhere. It's not the best thing in the world. (laughs) Something else is now. And maybe we think that's just a childish attitude. Really? Don't we just become a little bit more sophisticated about the things that we want, that we'll think, this is the best thing in the world, if I could just get this? And a little while later, it's lying broken on the floor. And we're pursuing some other dream. Paul says he learned to be content in whatever circumstances he found himself in. And having learned this, look at what he now knows. He says, I know how to make do with a little. I think most of us can probably associate with that statement fairly well. Because we've, we've grown up with... Maybe parents or families or circumstances where you might not have a lot. There might not be like as much as somebody else in your school or your neighborhood. And and you've gone, oh, look, we've learned to make do. Which means 
We can make ends meet with what we've got. I know it's not much, but we make do. Paul says, I've learned how to make do with little. But then he says, I know how to make do with a lot. See, sometimes when we think, if we have a lot, we no longer have to make do. We've got an abundance. We can live it up. Lifestyles of the rich and famous even, right? But Paul says, I've learned how to make do with a little. I've also learned how to make do with a lot. So whether he had little or lot didn't seem to make any difference. He'd learned how to make do. The term make do, I think, is the key here. Most of us don't aspire to making do. On your financial uh, objectives, when you sit down with your financial advisor and he says, what are your five-year goals and what are your 10-year goals and what are your 15-year goals? Not many of us answer, I'd really like to make do. (laughs) We want to have more than just enough to get by on. We understand make do with a little But what does it look like to make do with a lot? In any and all circumstances, he says, I have learned the secret of being content. And he says, whether I am well fed or whether I'm hungry, whether in abundance or in need. Here's the secret. You probably find it on your coffee cup. I'm able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's break that down a little bit, just to make sure we understand it. All things. What does that phrase, all things, include? Maybe you could answer, well, it means everything, right? I can do everything and anything through Christ who strengthens me. But does it really mean that? Is this the perfect Christian motivation mantra? So that whenever I come up against something that is challenging or difficult, I just repeat repeat Philippians 4.13 to myself over and over again, claim the promise and then conquer it, right? No. As much as that would be nice, you can't apply this verse to any and every situation in your life in that way. We need to understand the Bible in how it intends to be understood. Paul has been specifically talking about seasons in his life where he had experienced both lack and plenty, both hardship and sorrow. Both hunger and abundance. And more than that, Paul has told us that he has learned a secret in these circumstances that has enabled him to experience contentment. The all things here is a direct reference to all the circumstances Paul has faced and found contentment in. This verse is far less about thinking positive thoughts while you apply for your dream job, I can do, I'm going to put my resume in. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
that job's mine. No. It's actually much more about finding your contentment in Christ when you get a rejection letter. When you hear that that dream job of yours went to somebody else, now's the time to pull out Philippians 4.13. Otherwise, where was your contentment? In Christ or in the job? What about through him? In all things... I can do all things. Well, now we know a little bit more that all things particularly means circumstances of life, whether abundance or lack. In all of those, doesn't matter what the circumstances are, I'm going to find my contentment. They're not connected to my circumstances. Through him. In addition to misapplying this verse as a type of motivational mantra, we also so often begin to subtly shift the emphasis towards ourselves. Our mind gravitates towards the I at the beginning of that sentence rather than the him. And so we can begin to say, I, I can do all things through Christ. I can do all things through Christ. But Paul's emphasis here is on Jesus. This is an example of Paul echoing the teachings of Jesus himself. John 15 verse 5, I am the vine. You are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing apart from me. My job is to stick close to Jesus, to remain. Jesus' job is everything else. Jesus and I are a team, but Jesus is carrying the team. All right. Contentment's one thing. Generosity's the next. Philippians, back to Philippians 4, verse 14. So even though Paul has said, hey, listen, I'm content. You don't have to worry about my needs. I'm content. doesn't matter whether I'm Hungry or well-fed, I've learnt to make do in all of these circumstances because my strength is in Jesus and he gives me contentment. Verse 14, still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my needs several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. But I've received everything in full and I'm, I have an abundance. I'm fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided. A fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So often I think, especially when it comes to tithing, the question is asked, how much do I need to give? Did you mention tithing this morning, Tim? No? Let me mention it. We have a box out there on the morning tea table when you get a coffee or a cup of tea. There's a place out there that you can give your 
cash offerings if you want to give offerings. And also up on the table here and here, and I think maybe possibly at the back, there's some bags. If you want to give a cash offering as a part of your tithe and worship in this church, there's a place that you can do that. There's also a place on our website. You can go uh, forward slash give, and it gives you details, bank details. You can, there's lots of different ways to give. We encourage giving. How much do I need to give? But at the core of this question is, what's the minimum I need to give and still feel good about myself? <laughs> Let's be honest. So often that's what it's been in my life. Is it 10%? If so, is that before tax or after? <laughs> Had these questions for yourself? Isn't 10% just an Old Testament thing? <laughs> right? Doesn't the New Testament say I should just give what I can? Didn't Jesus praise the widow who just put in one cent? I reckon I could manage that. I want to be a widow, a widow giver. One cent for me. We're asking the wrong questions when we do that. Maybe instead of asking how much do I need to give... What if we asked, how much do I need to keep? I think I learned that from you, Luke, a number of years ago. You said that. How much do I need to keep? What if rather than obsessing over a figure, we laid bare our hearts before the Lord and asked ourselves, would my offering be considered generous? Do I consider tithing a duty or a delight? When I give, do I consider it losing something or gaining something? They're the questions we should be asking ourselves. Because we need to be looking for the right type of profit. Philippians 4.17 Not that I seek the gift, Paul says, but I seek the profit... Now, there's language that we understand, profit, that is increasing to your account. There's another word we understand, profit, account. This church has accounts. We aren't a business. We don't have stock to sell. We have accounting software and a bank balance. And each week, money goes in purely through your tithes and offerings. And each week, money goes out. Wages for gospel workers, support for missionaries, ministry expenses, utilities, land rates, building upkeep. Our accounting software registers whether we've made a profit or a loss. That figure matters. It matters because God expects us to be good stewards of what he entrusts us with. And it matters because if we don't give obediently while living within our means, eventually we can't run the lights. It's not a big deal. Or spend what is required to keep gospel ministry happening in our town. That is a big deal. Or help put food on the table of those who have taken the gospel beyond these borders. That's a big deal. 
But the profit and loss statement for each month isn't really the figure that I am most concerned with here. The generosity of this church, or lack of it, contributes to a better profit, Paul says. And one that isn't credited to our account. He says it's credited to yours. That your generosity is a profit that is accredited to your account. So while I'd love to see a healthier number on our accounting software, I would. We've, um, this last 18 months has been hard as a church for us financially. And we've been grateful for some generous gifts and even some help and assistance from federal government in a few things. But I would love to see a, a healthier number on our accounting software. But I'm more concerned about the profit that can only be recorded in eternity in your account. Because giving generously out of gospel-fueled joy is the only transaction where the more you give, the more you receive. Your generosity with the right heart's attitude delivers a profit to your account. And when that happens... The profit and loss statement we can print out each month will fade into insignificance. Because we, despite our abundance or despite our lack, will have learned the secret of contentment. Which is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So there's the letter from Paul to the Philippians and by the Spirit, it's a letter to us in Raymond Terrace today as well. It's been a letter about the gospel and about grace and about joy and how that joy overflows into the practical parts of our life. If you're not in a small group, I would encourage you, join a small group and be with each other as you read through these texts or whatever text it is that you're looking at and start to explore on the ground with each other in your families as individuals, what does this look like when the gospel takes root in my life? One place it looks like is it will start to affect your contentment and it will start to affect our generosity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this letter. Thank you for Paul's willingness to write it from a hard place. Thank you for this church in Philippi. And thank you that by your spirit, you have preserved this text for us that we can see and grasp an insight into the gospel, which is more than just an academic reality or a theological truth, but it is a grace upon grace that brings joy. Lord, help it to drive down deep into our lives as a church so that we might overflow with grace and overflow with joy into the practical parts of life. Help us to learn, as Paul did, the secret of contentment. 
And help us to be a church that is marked by generosity. We need your help in all of these things. And so we pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen.